Elliot Friedman is aboard from Tampa from 32 Thoughts and Hockey Night in Canada. Hello, Fridge. Good afternoon, Mr. Merrick. How are you doing? Uh, I am well. What's the vibe in Tampa right now? How is everybody feeling about the team there today? We've seen Tampa in this situation down 2 nothing after two games, uh, most recently against the New York Rangers. But, Elliot, correct me if I'm wrong, this one feels different. It sure does. As a matter of fact, just some of the Lightning fans, you know, we ran into since we got in yesterday, they were all saying things like, well, we've seen this before, we haven't seen that. And that is game two. Like, they've, you know, they've, I remember game one of the series against Toronto, they lost, what, 5 nothing. But, you know, I don't think anybody was really panicked by that one. Um, I, I definitely think that there's panic, I don't know, among the fan base about this one so far. They, Colorado just looks like a different animal, although we'll see how they all line up tonight. It sounds like, you know, I don't think they're going to have Burakovsky, but, geez, they just swarm you. And the people here are nervous. There's no question about it. The team doesn't look nervous, but the fans sure do. Yeah, what's the update on Burakovsky, just as a quick aside? Well, they haven't. uh, Bednar hasn't met with the media yet. So uh, I don't know if we have clarity yet. The word is believed to be a broken thumb. But, you know, like I said, I don't have that exactly yet, although that's what I kind of think it is. This is with Colorado and thumb injuries uh, during these playoffs. I saw Kadri skating skating this morning, by the way. Is there any update there? Like I said, I'm still waiting for Bednar to clear it up. You know, I did. it's two weeks today since Kadri had the surgery. This was the time where they thought they would have an idea on whether or not he could play in this series. Like what I heard was, We'll know two weeks after the surgery if this is a possibility. And so, you know, the fact that he's skating now, he's doing some stick handling, he's, I think he's starting to shoot the puck a little bit. You know, I think they're hoping, you know, Cogliano, I don't think it's a thumb. I think it's somewhere else. And also Cogliano is not, you know, kind of the same player. I wouldn't want to say it's easier for him to come back, but he's not as much of a shooter. I think for a Burakovsky or a Kadri, it's a much bigger challenge. Yeah, uh, although we should mention, Cogliano and Helm are outstanding killing penalties. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Unbelievable series in particular. You know what I like about both those players? Just just when I, when I look at their career and, and Cogliano... You know, played his junior in Ontario with St. Mike's and then went the college route. Darren Helm played with the Medicine Hat Tigers of the Western Hockey League. Yeah, these guys could shoot the lights out when they were kids. And they got to the yep. NHL and they, they both realized, okay, if I'm going to stay here, I can't do the same things I did when I was younger and I was playing junior hockey. Like, that game isn't going to work for me here. And they deliberately went out and transformed their games. You know, to the point where, you know, Cogliano, when he was with Anaheim, Along with Silverberg and Kessler, like you can make you can make the argument that they, that all three of those players could have been nominated for the Selkie Trophy. Like I just love players that realize, okay, what used to work when I was 18 isn't working now. I need to change my game. And as far as the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs go, Exhibit A and B might be Cogliano and Helm here. Well, I always think about one of our coworkers, Nick. Right? Like Nick was a 60 yeah. goal scorer in North Bay, and yep. he had to change his game to go to the NHL. And it just shows you how hard it is to make the National Hockey League. Like, uh, you know, if you're, I've always felt if, if you play in the NHL, you're an incredible player. 
because yep. it's hard to get there. And as you say, uh, guys like Cogliano and Helm, and you know, you sometimes you you are the best of the best among your group, uh, but you have to, you know, you have to accept different roles because now you're you're not just playing with the best of the best in your group. You're playing with the best of the best in the world, and mm-hmm. it's really hard. Like you look at the careers those guys have had; those are incredible careers, incredible. And to to, to last as long as those guys have, and to be wanted like those little guys are, it yeah. shows how much they embraced it and how much they excelled at it. The key for both of them: skating. Both excellent skaters. Yeah. Both Darren, both Darren Helm and, and Andrew Cogliano. Okay, so from an individual player point of view, I want to move on and talk about a couple of NHL issues here, but from an individual player point of view, coming out of Game 2, who impressed you the most on Saturday night? Well, I, I think there's a lot of talk in this series, and for good reason, about Nichushkin. Um, You know, it's, it's an interesting one, and I heard you teasing that you're going to speak to uh, Ken about it. Uh, yep. You know he's he's the darling right now. You know he's got he's got about four points in the first two games. Uh, should have had a hat trick, but you know Vasilevsky made an unbelievable save off him. I think there's yeah. a lot of people wondering about his future. Um, you know I, I think he's probably that guy right now. I mean he's been. He, I, it still amazes me when you really think about it. This is a guy. Everybody talks about how he had no goals that year in in Dallas. I think the thing that blows me away is he had no penalty minutes. Like how, yeah. like if you have if you have no goals, then you think you're playing a physical role or you're running over people or something like that. And now you look at him and I, I think it's incredible to see how he's playing and how how good he's become. And I can see why a lot of the talk here is that they're gonna try to find a way to keep him and and he's very interested in it because he recognizes when you're in a good situation. I, I'm amazed by this whole Nechushkin story. I think he's the guy that really stands out for me. And, you know, the other guy I would say, and he doesn't get a ton of attention, but he's had to pick up the role since Caudry got hurt, is, is Comfort. Um, yeah. You know, he, he's not a guy who takes a lot of air and gets a lot of attention, but I, I like Comfort's game too. I think that he's proven if you need him to take – a bigger role when it matters. He's capable, more than capable of doing it. Uh, that is the uh, the piece of the Ryan O'Reilly trade that still exists still on the roster for, yeah. the, uh, for the Colorado Avalanche. Okay, so to a couple of things, uh, you tweeted about this last night, although uh, nothing is official yet from the Dallas Stars. Uh, it looks more and more and sounds more and more, and we're inching more and more closer to Peter DeBoer becoming the next head coach of the Dallas Stars. Yeah, I'm not sure that it's going to be announced today. I think uh, I think the lawyers want to get their hourly uh, hourly uh, billing in. So let's make some I, I let's make some let's make some lawyers rich first before we finish this. So <laughs> my my favorite yeah. part of a negotiation. Yeah. So like like there, I guess what's happened is that it's officially getting uh, it's got to get papered and things like that. But it's you know like from what I understand, there's an agreement there. It's just a matter of getting the signatures on it, but uh, DeBoer is going to be the next head coach in, uh, in Dallas. And the question is like, just when do they announce it? I don't, I don't, it doesn't sound like, I mean, it, it would be a real stunner if it didn't happen at this point. Mm-hmm. I'd be the, the one thing that I'd be most curious about. And I, I say this, not just of Peter DeBoer, Elliot, but 
really everybody in this organization and not just players, but everybody behind the scenes as well. The sense that I get is that the new model that the owner wants to work with there is he doesn't want to give anybody time. Nobody gets a lot of terms. Specifically, John Klingberg found this out during his negotiation. Uh, you know, specifically players of that vintage uh, are not going to get term. But it seems as if no one's really getting term in Dallas. I'd be most curious what the term is for Peter DeBoer's contract. What do you think the most interesting part of this deal could be for you? Well, I just think that he was a guy that they. I mean, right from the beginning, Jeff, we heard that DeBoer was a major, going to be a major factor there. Like, it's very clear to me that he was a guy that they were, you know, very, very interested in. And I, I don't know if he was always going to get it, but it was very clear to me that he was a guy that, um, that, they, were, that, that they really targeted to speak to and have interest in. If you look at it, you know, Pavelski... I, yep. I think would be uh, would be a big part of that, and also, you know, th- there's a guy, um, you know, who runs their media relations, Tom Holy. You know, uh, I think you know I, he was in San Jose before too, so he would have, I think, a tie-in. I think double check this, but I think he would have a tie-in too. Um, you know, there's people there who knew him, and. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's got turned to it somewhere around four years. I don't know that for sure, but I don't mm-hmm. think he's going there for two years, for example. Well, so here becomes the interesting dynamic then, because unless it's a one-year deal, the coach goes in with more term than the general manager, and I don't think this is going to be a one-year deal, Elliot. How? No. I don't know. What are some of the... I don't know, what are some of the uh, the issues around that situation where the coach walks in with more term than the GM? Well, I, I, you know, I, I heard I saw Pierre Lebron had a tweet earlier in the week about that, about just like how some of the contenders in Dallas were a little concerned that Jim Mill had only one year left. Like, and I understand that. You know, you want to know you can work with someone. Um, like, I don't get a sense that the stars are really rushing to get rid of Jim Neal. Um, I wonder about how the structure of all this could look in a year, but I don't get a sense that they're really rushing to, to get rid of him. I mean, if anything, if you take a look at what Jim Neal's done the last few years, like the stars look like they're replenished in some ways. You know, they, you know they've got uh, Robertson, they've got Ottinger, they've got Haskinen, and you know, they're, they're going to get, I, I assume they're going to get Robertson and Hintz done this summer. Like, you, you look at the way, you know, they've kind of rebuilt their youth a bit. Like, I, I, I don't see, like, you said one thing. I, I do think that the, the Ben and the Sagan contracts, they kind of look at their decision-making process there and say, okay, how do we, how do we deal with this? But in terms of, you know, getting the roster together, I think Dallas is in good shape. So I'm not, like, even though he's got a year left, I'm not convinced the Dallas Stars are rushing to remove Jim Neal. I just think my question is how the whole thing is, uh, how it's going to work in terms of uh, the structure of the organization. The, the, the only area where I really give that a lot of concert is, like, if your general manager only, if he's only has one more year left on his deal, I always wonder... 
how that affects free agency. And if your team is free agent shopping and you're a player yeah. and you say, mm, so I remember having, remember having a conversation with, remember Teddy Purcell? Of course, yes. Land? Of course, we all remember Teddy Purcell, mm-hmm. Kings, and where do you play, Tampa, Edmonton. Yep. I think he might have finished up in Florida. Anyway, um, he was negotiating with the, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, before he ended up signing with the Los Angeles Kings coming out of college. And his main concern, I said, how come he didn't sign? Because I think he grew up a Maple Leafs fan in Newfoundland. And he said, I wanted to sign with the Maple Leafs, but, you know, our camp was unsure what was going to happen with John Ferguson. And, you know, what would happen to us if, let's say, because there were always the rumors that the Leafs were going to part ways with him. What would our status be if, you know, after a year of our deal, all of a sudden the guy that brought us in is gone? Does that put us in a vulnerable spot? That's why I always, and there have been other cases of this as well, that's why I'm always sort of sensitive about a general manager with only one year left on his deal. Yeah, that's all fair. I, I understand all that, but it sounds like uh, it sounds like Dallas and, and DeBoer have kind of moved past that issue. But, uh, you know, I understand why people would be concerned about that. Uh, a couple of other things really quick. Um, so that's Peter DeBoer in Dallas. Uh, do we get clarity this week on the Florida situation, you think? I don't know. I mean, that's like a roller coaster. <laughs> that's is. like the Yukon striker. <laughs> the great Canadian mind buster. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, I know. Oh, great. I, that that's the one fire. I remember from my youth. I, uh, I don't know. I mean... Like I said, on Saturday I heard some positivity that this was going to get sorted out. Um, I think this has been, you know, I, I think this, I think people are kind of surprised that, you know, I mean, I think people, you know, I think people look at what happened with Burnett this year and they're really understanding of the fact that he was, he was thrust into a really difficult and challenging situation. And everybody understands Florida is disappointed by the way this season ended. And I think everybody gets all that. But I think the process of this has uh, disappointed people. And, um, and I, I, just, I, I, think, I think the other thing, too, is that like some days it appears as if things are going to work out. And other days it appears as if things aren't going to work out. And, you know, is Brunette going to be back as – as the head coach, is, is Burnett going to be back as the head coach with a, a blast or a green next to him? Is he going to be out? Uh, you know, are they going to hold him to, well, we've got one more year as an assistant and we want you to fill it. Um, I have no doubt that there are teams that would love to have Burnett as an assistant if he's not the head coach there. And to be honest, uh, Jeff, I've wondered if, you know, Detroit or Boston or Chicago would get involved here if he was available. I, I, I just think that, like, look, like Florida can do what Florida wants to do. This is a cutthroat business, and you have to do things. I just think it's been beyond clumsily handled. I keep putting myself in Andrew Burnett's shoes and thinking to myself, what more else did I need to do here? I know it didn't end like you mentioned, the way they wanted against Tampa Bay, but... Last time I checked, he was nominated for the Jack Adams. Uh, a couple other things really quickly here. Um, San Jose and their general manager search. As we have this conversation, it's June 20th, and the NHL draft, is, well, round one anyhow, is on July 7th. We're getting closer to the draft. Is there a, a pressure or a pressure point moment where San Jose feels they need to have a general manager in place? 
I think San Jose has always looked at it like they, they've always looked at it like if we don't have someone by the draft, we still have people here who can run our draft. Like Joe Will is still there. Tim Burke, who's done a lot of their scouting, is still there. Doug Wilson Jr. is still there. Do I think we're getting closer? Yes. Do I think they feel a lot of pressure? Not necessarily. Um, so on the podcast last one, we speculated about an international candidate. And, uh, um, you know, just I, so I got some notes about it. And, you know, we were talking about ties to San Jose. Like they were looking at people like Mike Greer and, and Ray Whitney and, and Scott Nickel. Well, someone pointed out to me that there is an international candidate who played for the Sharks, and that's Johan Garpenlov. And Garpenlov is, yes, Crossbar Garpenlov. A lot of people think of about uh, <laughs> if you're a Maple Leaf fan, that's what you think about for sure. Um, you know, he's been involved with Team Sweden as a coach and manager. And I had some people who say to me that if you're looking for an international candidate, that's one with Sharks connections. So. I mean, we'll see. Um, the Sharks have really worked hard to try to keep this private. They've, I think in a couple of cases, said to people, if your name gets out, that's going to be a big strike against you. So, they, so people have worked hard to keep it private. But that's, uh, that's another one of the names I, someone directed to me. Johan Garpenloff, I remember that moment well. Um, yeah, Edmonton sharper focus this week. I mean, Woodcroft certainly, uh, and maybe Paul Coffey's role with the organization. Anything with like is 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 this the week that finally things start to get, or the picture starts to get a little more focused here? I think so. Like I, I like I've always believed the Woodcroft thing is going to get done. It's just a slower moving process than things that people would like. I still think that's going to happen. Um, uh, the coffee thing, I'm very curious to see where that ends up. But, you know, they still have, we still have it's still the 20th. So it's still another 10 days before they have to know about their roster. Like, you know, I, I just think that they, they have to get an idea of what, their ro- of what their roster is going to look like in terms of who's coming back and who isn't before I really think you're going to see some of these decisions get made or done in terms of the roster. Uh, and quickly before you wrap up, oh, by the way, uh, John Tortorella is coming up at the bottom of the hour. Very much looking oh, forward nice. to talking to the uh, Philadelphia Flyers uh, head coach. Um, but speaking of the Philadelphia Flyers, today is the 30th anniversary of the Eric Lindros draft. Now, there's an asterisk beside that because the deal was done on June 20th but was finally confirmed on June 30th because there were two teams that Lindros was traded to and this yeah. begat the uh, the origins of the trade call which we still have to this day um the flyers ended up with the player and the flyers um uh, surrendered uh, Peter Forsberg, Ron Hextall, Steve Deshane, Mike Ricci, Kerry Huffman, Chris Simon, uh, and first-round picks, plus $15 million. The Rangers uh, had offered the Quebec Nordiques uh, Sergei Nemchinov, Tony Amante, Alex Kovalev, James Patrick, and either John Van Beesbrook or Mike Richter, a first-round draft pick, and $20 million. This is one of those trades... You know, you remember where you were when it was uh, done. You remember oh, yeah. where you were when it was clarified. And it's one of those trades that, you know, no matter 
how old you were or your perspective on it at the time, I'm guessing over 30 years, it may have changed. Uh, your thoughts 30 years later on the Lindros trade? Well, I, I mean, I always remember not so much the draft. I remember him at the Canada Cup in 91. Because there was still a lot I still, there was still a lot of yeah mystery about him and I I, I care was it was which Swedish defenseman was it was it Shell Samuelson that he crushed? Uh, ooh, I'm not sure. And, was, and, there, there was there was a couple. It was right behind the net, right? I remember that one. Yeah, just, there was a huge hit he delivered, and and there was a huge hit he delivered, and he I remember people looked at that and said, "Oh my god," because at that point in time, like there were still. Everybody knew about Lindros, but, you know, he hadn't played in the NHL yet. So there was still some question, not doubt that he was going to be good, but just how good was he and how impactful was he going to be? And I think when he delivered that hit um, and then he started to score a bit there, people began to look and say, oh, my God, like, what do we have here? And you're right, the trade was so crazy and so screwed up that, it just seemed like it was a huge story over and over and over again. And, yeah. uh, I mean, like, it, I, when I think about Lindros, first of all, I think about what a great player he was. Secondly, I, I think about um, just, you know, like I always think about if he had been more healthy, like we talk about the people who are on the hockey Mount Rushmore, right? And it's yeah. always kind of been... Uh, it's been Richard or Howe, Gretzky, and Lemieux. And now we're talking about where's Crosby going to be in this. And I think if Lindros had stayed healthy, we'd be talking about where he'd be in all of this. But, you know, the, the other thing, too, is I'm just glad that, you know, after his career is over, like the respect is there. He's made peace with the Flyers and he's part of the family. He's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Like, I just wondered if, like, and, and, and the history has shown that the way he tried to protect himself and the concussions and everything, he was ahead of his time. And I'm just glad that history has shown that, mm -hmm. and, and, and in life now, Jeff, like, there seems to be a lot of peace with him and his legacy, and Thanks, I like man. that. I, I think he earned and deserved that. Uh, I've always maintained as far as being a peak performer, like there was that window of about three years where if he played, you know, 90% of his career like that, he would have been considered the greatest hockey player of all time. Like I've always maintained that there were those three years where no one could skate like that, hit like that, shoot like that, play make like that, intimidate like that. Like he did all of it. Did I ever tell you my Todd Warner story about, about Eric Lindros? No, what was that? So Todd Warner gets selected fourth overall by the Quebec Nordiques and the draft is in Montreal and he goes up and he puts on the jersey and the place in Montreal goes crazy and it's a standing ovation. And Todd looks around, he's really confused, like, I'm in Montreal, why are they applauding the Quebec Nordiques pick? And he talked to his agent afterwards, he goes, well, that was a nice reception, I was a little surprised, why was the Quebec Nordique getting the, the big ovation? in Montreal and he said don't you remember who Quebec took last year 
And Todd said no. And he said they took Eric Lindros and refused to put on the the uh, the fleur de lis, the Quebecois, the uh, the the Quebec Nordiques jersey. Said so this was a this was a victory you know, for for French Canada. That here's another anglophone hockey player, and he's putting on the jersey one year after Eric Lindros didn't. That's why you got the ovation in Montreal. You know, my reaction to that is, how did Todd not remember he was taken first overall the year before? What's that? Sorry about that. I just you just cut out there, Fridge. My reaction to that is, how did Warner not remember who was taken first overall the year before? <laughs> like, come on, Warner. Hey, man, it's hockey. It's what the hockey. heck? We got to hustle. We uh, we have John Tortorella standing by, head coach of the Philadelphia Flyers. Fridge, always a blast. Uh, you be well. We will uh, chat after tonight's game, podcast style. Enjoy game three, my friend. All right. Take care, Mark. There he is. Um, Elliot Frieden from 32 Thoughts and Hockey Night in Canada.